All right. Could we stand together in honor of God's word? We are we are starting a Christmas series today um, called His Story. And uh, the title of today's message is The Preparation. All right, here we go. Galatians 4.4. 4. When the set time had fully come, God sent His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And then Luke chapter 1. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zechariah. But his mother spoke up and said, No, he is to be called John. They said to her, There is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet, and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, His name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened, and his tongue was set free. And he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbors were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, What then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. This is part of his prophecy. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, thank you for your word. Would you hide me behind the cross? Open our hearts to who you are, to your ways in all of history, but also your ways to us. Please, God, let each one hear what the Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. His story, preparation. So when it says that in in the fullness of time, or at just the right time, it is this very special Greek word, Koine Greek word for time, that is kairos. And the the word kairos has no English equivalent, which is why it's translated so many different ways. It's, it's, It's translated an opportune time, the right time, the proper time, in due time, the set time. It is God's time. It is, it is not just time going past, but it is God's divine interactions with history, which is what makes it his history at just the right time. At God's time, Jesus broke in to history, was born under the law, and came for our redemption. Here's what I've learned about God's time. It, it doesn't really coincide 
with our timing, how we would do it, how we wish it was done. Why, why would there be thousands of years before the Messiah would come? Why was that the right time? So I want to talk about how God prepares us. First, he prepares us with silence. The last prophet in Israel, before John the Baptist, was Malachi. 400 years earlier. Why would there be silence for 400 years? If I'm God, I'm talking all the time. 400 years of silence. Not that God wasn't still taking care of his people and helping them with their, and speaking in little things, but over the the big picture, there was 400 years of silence. Silence that was only broken with John the Baptist. Why? Why silence? It parallels the 400 years that the children of Israel were in Egypt. God had spoken to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and and the prophetic was alive and God gave many different things to the three patriarchs and then they went down to Egypt and there's silence for 400 years until Moses breaks the silence. Why? Why in our lives sometimes God will do a hundred little things, but the one big thing we want him to do, he, it's like he doesn't even hear. Here's what he wants us to know about his silence. God's silence is not God's disinterest or that somehow God doesn't care. When he came down He said this to Moses after the 400 years. He says, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. And I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. God sees and God feels our pain, our questions, our oppression. God God knows what we are going through. His silence should never be interpreted is that God doesn't see me and God doesn't care for me. Zechariah had given up on his prayers. I want you to hear, um, Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. His wife is Elizabeth. An angel appears to him, and this is in Luke 1, 13 and 14. It says, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. (laughs) Here's the problem with the answer to this prayer. It's too late. (laughs) Zechariah. It says earlier in the text that Zechariah and Elizabeth were, were blameless. They were, they were Jews. They were practicing Jews. He's a priest. They are godly in every way. And then it says, but his wife was barren. 
And now they're, they're in old age now. When John prayed for a baby, when, back when they were young, it was way more than for a baby. It was for his wife's happiness. It was in that, in that society, barrenness was a sign of God's disfavor and it was interpreted that. And, and she was, uh, that was a, a woman's joy was wrapped up in being able to bring forth children. You, you see it with Hannah when she's just at the temple trembling in prayer and Elkanah, her husband is like, why are you, why are you so depressed? Aren't I as good as 10 sons? But a woman's happiness in that day and and her sense of God's favor was tied up in the ability to bear a child. And so I I can imagine those prayers. Those prayers were not just for a child. They were for his wife's happiness. And and then, of course, every husband knows (laughs) happy wife, happy life. I mean, it's not, if your wife's not happy, you're not fully happy. And so it's, I mean, there, there was a lot of prayer. I can imagine the intensity of that prayer. But when the angel comes to Zechariah and says, your prayers have been answered, he, he just can't believe. He's, he has already shut down. And because he doesn't believe, he, he goes silent for the entire pregnancy. For nine months, he is pregnant because he didn't believe. Isn't it amazing that he had given up on his prayers, but God had not given up on his prayers? So why does God wait? Two reasons. <laughs> two reasons that I'm giving. Who knows? Who knows why God waits? I'm going to give you two possible reasons. Number one, to win a bigger victory. To win a bigger victory. God wasn't just thinking about Elizabeth and Zechariah's happiness. He's thinking about the whole of Judea. He's he's going to bring something that's way bigger than their lives. They can't comprehend it. It's very hard for us because we live in our own little world and we we have our own little happiness and we, we don't realize that in the heart of God, he doesn't just see us. He sees everybody under our influence. He says he sees the bigger the bigger picture. And even in his, his silence for nine months, I mean, why, why would God be so mean to make him silent for nine months? Guys, because he was silent for nine months and couldn't speak, when, he's, when he wrote his name is John, which is actually him believing the, the word that the, the, the angel had said was his name will be John. When he wrote his name, and he can speak again. It says that everybody said, what is this? God is in our midst again. 
God has broken in. The, it says that the word went out, not just to their neighbors, but to all of Judea. The story was told of the nine months of silence, of the angel appearance, of, of what was going on. Something more was happening than just Augustus and Herod and all of the things that were happening in Israel. God was doing something. And it created an expectation It created, if you will, a preparation for what God was doing, which was much, much bigger than what man could possibly conceive of. In the mid-80s, a book came out by a book of fiction called This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti. And it was an introduction to spiritual warfare. And it was, he, he depicted, amazingly depicted, the, the, the angelic hosts and how they are linked to our prayers and the warfare that's going on all around us. And what, what really struck me in the book, um, because there's orders of angels that, that there, there's lower angels, there's higher angels, there's angels that are in heaven, there are angels that are down here. And, and, and as this story unfolds of the, of the town of Ashton and this horrible demonic plot, um, the people of God are suffering. The people of God are hurting. And the lower angel, the lower rank angels are always like, because they can do something to stop suffering. They want to, they want to intervene. They want to do what they can do. They're powerful. They can, they can stop the suffering right now. And the higher order angels would say, no, no, no. The spirit says, no, not now, not now. Wait, wait. They're like, why would we wait? God's people are suffering. Why would we wait? And the answer is this. Watch. God has a bigger victory. He's got a bigger victory than this little skirmish here. But we must wait for his timing. Why does God wait first to win a bigger victory and second to break human pride? 1 Peter 5, 5 through 7. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Due time there? Uh, due time, that's kairos again. That's another translation of kairos. In his time, he will lift you up. Humble yourself under God's mighty hand. God's hand represents what God can do for you. There's nothing God can't do for you. He is amazing. He's powerful. He can do stuff. But you need to wait in humility for his timing. And then look at this. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Just because he's not doing it right now does not mean he doesn't see it, doesn't mean he didn't hear your prayer, and it doesn't mean he he doesn't care for you. He loves you, and you can rest in his love while you're waiting for that kairos. What waiting does is it breaks pride. It breaks pride. God wants to remove pride from our hearts. Why? Because God resists the proud, even if they're Christian. But he gives grace to the humble. 
So this, this is an issue. <clears throat> so here was, here's what an atheist, how, how people justify being atheists. They will say, God, God is something that is made up by people because of their own weaknesses and deficiencies. They make up God to help them. Okay? The truth is this. Is the greatest weakness and the greatest deficiency of mankind is pride. The can't, that can't see the truth of who God is, of what his love is, of, of that he's everywhere. It, 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 pride is the greatest weakness and the greatest deficiency. So God strategizes. He uses his silence to break human pride. He purposely doesn't do our timing to break our own pride, our own trust in ourselves. Paul prayed three times. There was a messenger from Satan and he prayed three times that it would be removed. And God said, not, not at this time. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to sustain you right now with my grace. But Paul saw why. Uh, he said, this, is, this was to keep me from pride. It was to keep all the things God has shown me, all the things that God has done, that God has allowed this season of waiting and not an immediate answer of deliverance because he is, he is cutting away pride from my heart. Pride is very deceptive. And we often don't think it's a big problem with us. In Judges chapter 7 is one of the most incredible stories in the Bible about human pride. The Midianite army is gathered against Israel. There's 130,000 gathered against Israel. Israel's army at that time, this is in the book of Judges, is only 32,000. It is 32,000 against 130,000. And God comes, and this is Judges 7, 2. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. And then God says to him, so have everybody that's afraid go home. So Gideon gives the announcement and says, if you're afraid, um, go home. 22,000 soldiers leave. So now we're, there are 10,000. Now we're down to 10,000 versus 130,000. It's one on 13. Here's what God says to Gideon. You guys will still take the credit for it. You guys, there's still too many here. You guys will take the credit. Now at that point, if I'm Gideon, I'm saying, how could we? How could we possibly take the credit when, when it's one on 13? Certainly, God, you will get the glory. Certainly, we are incapable of being so arrogant as to think that a little army of 10,000 beat a, de, a, a defeat an army of 130,000. But God, see, God's foreknowledge. He doesn't just know what people are going to do. He knows what you would do if the circumstances were right. And, and he, he sees it clearly. He sees it as if it happened. He says, no, no. Trust me. 
No, there's more pride in you than you conceive. I need, I need to narrow this down some more. So he, ha- he says, I want everybody to go drink at the brook, and those that kneel, I want you to send home. And those who pick the water up in their hands, those are the ones you keep. Only 300 pick the water up in their hands and drink and, and lap like this. And now it is 300 against 130,000. You know what God said? Yeah, now I, I will get the glory now. <laughs> no, one, no one is going to take the credit that this was how amazing we were. You will give me all the glory and all the credit. Pride left unchecked ends up causing us to, to, to be in a place where God resists us. And God loves us. God doesn't want to ever resist us. He wants to pour. I love the end of that verse. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Grace is his enabling power. It is his favor. It is the the river of who he is flowing into human. There's nothing more beautiful than grace. He prepares us for his moving with silence. Secondly, he prepares us with sin. I'm sorry, Pastor Tom. Did you just say that God uses sin to prepare us? Yeah, that's what I said. The Bible says that Jesus, at just the right time, was born of a woman under the law. He was born under the law. There was something hovering over the human race called the law. The problem with the law is it demanded obedience. It demanded not just outward obedience, but perfect obedience from the heart. And the the law was causing a lot of trouble for the human race because of man's sinfulness. And so Jesus, there, there was a penalty under the law for sin, and the penalty was death. The holiness of God demanded death as the penalty for disobeying his law. So you got a very, very high law and you got very sinful people. And this, this, is a, this is a problem. So Jesus comes and he's born under law. And the first person in all of history fulfills the law perfectly, not just outwardly what it looks like, but on the inside. He's the one person in all of history that doesn't deserve to die. He deserves to live. And God makes the new covenant with him. The one that perfectly kept the law. And here was the new covenant. I will die in the place of all that deserve death. I will take their death sentence upon myself. Galatians chapter 3. Oh. And then by doing that, he is able to give us his, he died in our place, he rose from the dead, and now he can give us his righteousness as a gift. We don't deserve it, it comes as a gift of his love. He paid the perfect price, he died in our place, he rose from the dead, and then Romans 5, 17, if, for if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness Reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus was born under the law so that he could fulfill it for you, die for you, raise from the dead so that he could give you a righteousness you could never get by your own obedience. It's amazing. 
Galatians 3.24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. The, the law tutors us. It brings us to the place where we can accept Christ. How does this work? Here's Romans 7, 7 and 8. I would not have known that sin, what sin was, had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what covening really was if the law had not said, you shall not covenant. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. So the, the sinfulness of mankind was, was largely hidden from their eyes because of pride. And, and what the law did, the law brought out, God says, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. And when we couldn't do that, it became clear to us as the human race, there is a huge problem here. I am filled with sin. That which was, it's like, it's like you don't know how hard the wind is blowing until you face it. And when you face the wind, it's like, whoa, the wind is really blowing. I, I, didn't, I didn't realize how hard it was blowing until I faced it. And that's what the law, the law did. Jesus was born under the law. He came at just the right time. The law had done its work. The law's work was not to save us. The law's work was to expose us. The law is a mirror that shows us that we are in desperate need of a Savior. Matthew 11, 11 and 12. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, The kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. John the Baptist, God's man, the miraculous birth. He's filled with the spirit in the womb and Elizabeth feels joy when she sees Mary and and there's the recognition of the Savior. John the Baptist who's grown up in the wilderness eating curds and honey and and with sackcloth on and, and he gave this and... Jesus said, there's been no one like him. There's no one like John the Baptist. He's the greatest. He's the greatest under the law, greater than all the prophets. And then he says these words, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Huh? And then it says that the kingdom of God has been suffering violence from John the Baptist till now. That there was in this preparation, there was this hunger and thirst for God. There was this hunger and thirst for God and what God could do. And John the Baptist was just like this this spiritual hunger that made everybody hungry for God and hungry for what God was doing. But John the Baptist was ministering under the law. The door was closed to heaven. And however much spiritual hunger you had, you can't earn anything from God. Jesus came, he died, and he rose again. And now based not on our work, but based on his finished, perfect work, the very least in the kingdom of God has greater favor and greater access 
than John the Baptist ever could have had. Even though John was a great man. It's not about great men. It's about a great God who died in our place. It's about the work that God did on our behalf. The new covenant, heaven, has been opened by the blood of Jesus so that we can say yes to Jesus and immediately have greater access and privilege than John the Baptist ever had. So a few weeks ago, I shared a testimony about a, a hot tub experience that I had. And um, somebody, somebody sent me an email and said, you should write a book called Hot Tub Testimonies. <laughs> and, and, and the reason why is I, I've had just this crazy amount of divine activity in hot tubs, wherever I go, I like to sit in. I like to sit in the hot tub, and and it's I, not, honestly now I just wait for people. I'm just like I'm there. Something's going to happen here because every time I'm in a hot tub, God just does something and brings somebody in, and I've had all these divine appointments. And um, why? What what is the prophetic significance of the hot tub? Let me let me just tell you what it means to me. Okay? And I don't know if it means it to you, but it means it to me. Well, God is speaking. I'm a very type A person. I'm, I like to do, do, do. And what God has spoken to me through this is, Tom, my power and my grace are going to flow the greatest through you when you're in a place of rest. It's not when you're striving. It's not when it's your effort. It is when you are finding your rest in me. That's the, the picture of the hot tub. What is a hot tub? It's just, you're just there to rest. You're just there in, in this place of enjoyment, in this place where you are receiving. This is the place in the new covenant that the greatest power flows. It's not in our striving. It is in our resting in Christ. Our activity doesn't get us the victory. We fight from victory. Not for victory, from victory. When you start resting and then work out of that rest, the river of God, this is the new covenant. It's what the new covenant is. Sin prepares us for a savior. God doesn't show you your sin to condemn you. God shows you your sin to show you your need for a Savior, for, your, for his greater purpose, a greater identity. Your greatest identity is not sinner. Your greatest identity is in Christ as a favored son and daughter. Silence prepares us. Sin prepared us. And then finally, someone prepared us. Isn't that cool? They all start with S. I, I did that for you. Listen to John 1, 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. So John's just a regular person. He is, he's not the light. 
Jesus is the light. Jesus is the light that's going to light up everybody in the whole world. John's not the light. He is a witness to the light. And it says this. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. To prepare the human race, God didn't send a committee. He didn't send a program. He didn't send an app. He sent someone. And to me, it is absolutely stunning. Because in that day and in that hour, the leadership had become corrupt. You see it all through Jesus' ministry. That it was all about money and position and, get, and, and politics. And it had crept into the church or into the, into the people of God. So there was a great cynicism. Does that sound like any other day that you could think of where cynicism has gotten into the world? And isn't it amazing that God took one man How could one man prepare so many other people? The light shines brightest in the darkness, doesn't it? So today, I believe God's up to some incredible things in our day. And he's looking for someone to be his witness, to be a witness to the light. Do not underestimate your ability and your influence to prepare other people for Jesus. God is looking for people. He's looking. He's not raising up one John the Baptist. He's raising up a generation of John the Baptist for what he wants to do. He's raising up someone. Look at 1 Peter 3. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. We, are, we live ready, not just for the second coming so that when Jesus comes, we're ready to go. We also live ready to give an answer. This is still God's plan to send someone. He's got lost people everywhere. He's got people that he loves everywhere, people that he died for everywhere. And so he sends someone to them, someone that's not the light. Jesus is always the light. We are witnesses to that light. We shine with his light. And when we're shining, when we're shining brightly, people will ask us, you're different. You're different. Why are you different? You're going through the same thing I'm going through. You're happy. I'm sad. You're, I'm depressed. I'm suicidal. You're, what's going on with you? What is it? The Bible says that we are to be ready to give an answer for everyone that asks a reason for the hope that is in us. Christ in you is the hope of glory. It's not just your hope for glory. It's the hope for those around us. We live in a world that is increasingly becoming hopeless. And when you see hope, it's very attractive. It's their hope for glory is in you and I. So next Sunday night, uh, I'm, I'm doing 
a special service next Sunday night. It's the, the, the whole series on Christmas, it's five parts. It's the preparation. Next Sunday morning is going to be the pregnancy. And then next Sunday night is called the census. And here's, here's, here's what next Sunday night is going to be. It's apologetics. It is, there's, no, there's going to be no worship. It's a special service. It will go from six to seven. I will talk. Some of you are called to reach people that are very intellectual. And there are, some atheists have written some book and it's out on the internet. And, and the greatest attack on the New Testament is at its foundation. It's on Luke chapter one and two on the birth story of Jesus. And, and they try to make it like it's just fiction and therefore the whole thing is fiction. And it, you, the apologetics of what happened in history is powerful. But most people don't know that story and there's reasons for that. But I'm, that's what I'm going to do next Sunday night from 6 to 7. I'll speak. Then we'll open it up for questions and answers or comments for a half hour. We'll be done by 7.30. But that's a special service, and everybody is invited to it. Honestly, everybody's probably not going to want to come to that service. Uh, I will answer questions that you're not asking. <laughs> Okay, there are people out there asking those questions, but you're not asking those questions. And, and, and if you're not that type of person, that's why I moved it to a Sunday night and just made it a special service because I don't like having a service where, why, does, why is he even telling me this? I could care less. Anyway, um, that, so that's happening. That's happening next Sunday night. So the enemy, the, the strategy of the enemy, of course, if we are those that are preparing others, is to cause our light to grow dim. John the Baptist went to a very dark place while he was in prison. And I love it that it's John the Baptist. If John the Baptist can become discouraged, then you and I can become discouraged. There's no shame in being discouraged. You just need to own it and recognize what it is and get to the solution. But here's John the Baptist, the guy uh, that has been preparing the way, and he's in prison, and his disciples come and visit him, and he says these words to his disciples. This is in uh, Matthew 11. Go and ask Jesus this, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Now we know this is real. We know this is not just some game he's playing because the answer Jesus sends back ends with these words, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. There is a risk of even those who have served God the most of becoming offended with Jesus. And that that light that used to be very bright can grow very, very dim when we are offended with God. So how do you get offended with God? Why would John the Baptist put a question mark where there used to be an exclamation point. John, he's, he saw heaven open. 
He saw the Holy Spirit come like a dove on Jesus. He heard a voice out of heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He said with an exclamation, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There was confidence. There was assurance at one part of his life. And now he's in another part of his life. And where there used to be an exclamation point, there's now a question. Are you the one or should we start looking for somebody else? How do you get there? How do you get there? Well, it's just very human. We've all got expectations. We've all got a way that we think it's going to go. And John the Baptist has been in the wilderness and, and he confronts um, Herod Antipas and, and his supposed wife of their sin, of their open adultery. And, and uh, I mean, he's just got an expectation. He's God's man. He's God's prayer. He's been sovereignly protected. And I don't know if he thinks they're going to repent or if he thinks that somehow God's going to... But he gets arrested. He gets put in prison. This isn't supposed to happen. This isn't part of the story. This isn't part of what I thought. This isn't part of how I prayed. This isn't how God's special messenger would ever be treated. And whenever our expectation of life, especially as a Christian, as somebody that's serving God, and the reality of what's actually happening, when there's too big of a gap, something, the enemy starts coming like that roaring lion and starts, we start questioning that which we used to be very confident about. So a few weeks ago, I was in India. I was preaching in a place called Nagpur to pastors, and I was preaching from, it was called the Cave of Discouragement. It's from the story of Elijah. And Elijah, after all these great victories, had run in fear and was now in this cave, and he's saying, God, you know, take my life, I'm done, da-da-da-da. He's just very, very discouraged. What he thought would happen and what was actually happening were two different things, and he became very, very discouraged. The one whose light used to be very bright was very, very dim. And I told the, the story of Elijah and him, and that, that God said, you need, you need to go out. I need to whisper to you again. You need to experience my voice again, and And of course, Elijah ended, he got out of the cave and he ended very well. And I told a story from my own life. In 2009, I had uh, uh, just a horrible setback and, and, and I had, I said, I had said to God, God, uh, what you have allowed to happen to me, you, you supposedly love me more than I could ever love my children, way beyond what I love my children. But what you have allowed to happen to me I would never allow to happen to my children. And that was my, that was my offense at God. And of course, the problem with pastors is <laughs> you still got to preach next Sunday. It doesn't, it doesn't matter that you're offended and, and no one knows that you're offended and no one knows, you're, you're, the, you're the explanation point guy. You got to go up and next week, you got to say, every, God's great, God loves everybody, he's amazing, uh, he's always for you, but the, I was carrying around this, this offense and, and, and so, the, so the, the, the light gets dimmer when you feel like you're not fully 
there's, there's, there's a question mark. My, my, my whole Christian life from the beginning, I never questioned God's love. That was the whole message was God loves us. God's amazing. He loves us. To have a question mark there was very debilitating. And so I told the story while I'm in India. Of I, I, I go to our national convention and the speaker is speaking on a certain topic and in the middle of the message, he just stops and he looks out and he says, do you know why God allows some things to happen to his children that you would never allow to happen to your children? And it was the exact thing I had said to God. And he said, let me tell you why. And I'm just like, tell me. And he said, because God has the power of resurrection and you don't. And I gave that, I, I, I just told that story. And afterwards, there were like 500 pastors there. And, I, and, and at the end, I had everybody that was in the cave of discouragement open their arm, you know, like I do here, the receive position, da, 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 da. And I just asked that God would whisper, that God would speak into the darkness Amen. And this one guy comes up, and honestly, he looked like Moses. He's shining. I mean, the, the glory of God is shining on this man's face. And he's, he speaks broken English. English is probably his third language. And he is communicating to me what happened to him. And it was essentially this. The very question you had asked, I had asked God because of what had happened in my life. And the answer that God gave you is the answer God gave me today. Everything is different. And you know what I thought? I mean, a lot of good things happened while I was in India. But what if that was the only reason I needed to go to India was to tell that story so God could touch that man and whisper again and get that John the Baptist out of the prison and shining again. The intimacy of Jesus. He says to Elijah, go out and I'm going, to, I'm going to speak. And God comes in a whisper and speaks. And here's what happens with John the Baptist. The, the friends come and say to, 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 to Jesus, this is what John asks. And here's what Jesus says to him. We've got it here. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you, have, what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. Keep it going. One of two. There we go. And blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Jesus is quoting Isaiah 61. Remember how he started his ministry? He started his ministry by quoting Isaiah 61 and saying, today this has been fulfilled. It was the messianic passage of the Old Testament. All, everybody in Israel said, this is the Messiah. Only the Messiah will do these things. And Je he says, are you the one? And Jesus says, tell John, not tell the whole world, just John, this one intimate word, this one whisper to him in prison. You tell John that I am the one. Let him never doubt it again. Even though your life isn't going the way you thought it was, even though you wouldn't have done it this way, don't get offended by that, John. I am the one. You didn't miss it. I am 
the one. Okay, we're going to listen to a song called John the Baptist, and then we're going to close.